We are in Acts chapter 2, and it looks like we are getting close now to finishing chapter 2 in our, in our expositional study through the entire book of Acts, or at least that's our intention, that's the plan. And um, you may have noticed, I had mentioned way back when we started in Acts, I did a, a one-study overview, kind of introduction to the whole book of Acts. And I had mentioned, because we were coming fresh off of our Matthew study, I had mentioned that I'd be going a little quicker through the book of Acts than I did through Matthew. It wouldn't take quite as long, even though there's the same amount of chapters in Acts as there is in Matthew. And because, uh, because of the same number of chapters, I was explaining why we would probably end up finishing Acts if the Lord gives us that much time together quicker than it took us for Matthew. We as you, as you remember, we took nearly 11 years to make it all the way through the Gospel of Matthew. And I think at the end, the, the uh, average was about 10 or so cha- uh, studies per chapter, a little bit more than 10 uh, in Matthew. And so far, here we are near the end of the book of Acts. And so far, this is going to be study, I believe it's number 34. And we're just in the first two chapters, of course, in Acts. And so some of you have probably already started to think that I was just telling you stories when I said I was going to go quicker and um, that uh, I'm right back to my old patterns. So um, I just want you to understand we actually are going to pick up speed as we finish chapter two and move on into the rest of the book. Uh, The reason I've taken so long and so many studies in the first two chapters is because I'm convinced and I was even before I started the study, so I probably should have mentioned this to you, but I'm even more convinced of it as I've been working my way through this early material in Acts, that the first two chapters function in a very important way in relationship to the rest of the book. They're kind of like, they're kind of like the, um, the outline of the entire book. And there's summary information. There's, there's a critically important information in the first two chapters that we're going to carry forward with us through the rest of the chapters of Acts. And so in chapter one, for instance, I did two entire smaller series of teachings that could be done completely separate from the book of Acts. One we did on the kingdom of God and the other we did on the ascension of Christ. And uh, of course, those chewed up a lot of our our study time uh, together so far in Acts. And uh, in chapter two, I haven't done quite as many studies, but we've done We've done more than we will for each chapter in the remaining chapters in Acts. Uh, I was looking ahead in chapter 3. I may end up doing only three or four studies in chapter 3. So there will be a difference in terms of our pacing. But for today, we've got one study, of course, in a section that's critically important. And then I anticipate next Sunday doing one final study in Acts chapter 2. Then we'll take a break. We've got a Christmas service where I'll do some kind of Christmas-related message, and then I've got something planned for our New Year's Day message as we meet together on New Year's Day, and then, Lord willing, at the beginning of the new year, the second Sunday of January, we will uh, return to our Acts study. But for today, we are we picked up, or we're picking up where we left off. Uh, we finished uh, verse 36 of chapter 2. And we're starting verse 37. Now, uh, verse 36 was important in our overall study of Acts chapter 2 because it's the end of a long section in chapter 2, which was what is traditionally referred to, and even in our 
ESV translation, if you look back, for those who have an ESV that you're following along in, uh, just above verse 14, you'll see in italics, the translators have added kind of a summary of the long section we've just finished, starting in verse 14, stretching all the way to verse 36. And that is called here, Peter's Sermon at Pentecost. And I've already identified why what Peter had to say that day wasn't really technically a sermon because he wasn't speaking to believers. It wasn't a church service. It was what we would consider to be an outreach. It was a gospel encounter with the 3,000 some odd gathered souls that uh, came from the city of Jerusalem to, to find out what was going on as the spirit of God had been poured out by the Lord Jesus from heaven upon the 120 committed disciples of his at the beginning of the chapter. And they've been filled with the Spirit, and now the, the church in the upper room has spilled out into the street. They meet these 3,000 that have come out of curiosity, and Peter takes that opportunity to begin to proclaim the gospel to them. So we finished our entire study on Peter's sermon. We saw that he had one primary theme that was in his mind and heart, and that is he was pointing all of the spotlight on the Lord Jesus, who he is, what he had come to accomplish. And then we saw that he had seven sub-themes. I won't rename those for you. We've done that in all the studies up until now. And now he reaches his grand finale in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And that leads immediately to what happens after Peter finishes speaking. So for our study today, we're going to look at verses 36, or excuse me, 37 through 41. Let me read those verses. And um, this is the description, of course, of what happens next. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. All right, the one thing I want us to keep in mind as we dig into verses 37 through 41 this morning is this principle that I've already mentioned, which is that this material is meant to serve as, as kind of an outline or a template for not just the believers that were there that day or the people that got saved that day or the, even that first generation of people that had come to believe in the gospel and be true followers of Christ. But I think it's meant to be a template for all successive generations of Christianity down to our present time, including us and beyond us, until the Lord returns, until the second coming of Christ, till the end of history as we know it. What I mean by as a template is, I think we're meant to look at this material and not just say, 
wow, that was an amazing story. That's so cool what the Lord did for them in that day. But it has not a whole lot to do with us today. I think we're meant to look at it and say, wow, and then consider how does this touch our own relationship with the Lord today, both individually and corporately as his people. So I'm going to attempt to emphasize it from that perspective. All right, so verse 37 starts with the immediate reaction of the crowd. The crowd is a big one. It's some 3,000 people that have gathered and they've been listening to Peter proclaim and explain the gospel of salvation. And when he finishes, the crowd reacts. And this is the reaction. It's not first and foremost an external reaction. First and foremost, what's described here, and it's being described by Luke, who wasn't even there that day. Luke wrote the book of Acts. And later, what we find out from Luke's own testimony is that he went around through the Christian community, including people that were there that day, and he interviewed them, and he asked them questions about these events. And then by the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he wrote down a perfect record of exactly what did occur that day. And so what we have here is a reaction of the crowd, but it's a discerned reaction. What I mean by that is, it's not immediately obvious just to the casual observer. So we've got this group of 120 true disciples that were in the upper room. They're now out in the street. Peter's leading them. And then we've got this crowd that's gathered from the city of Jerusalem, some 3,000. And it's approximate, a rounded off number. So we know we have at least 3,120 people there. But there were a lot more than that of people that were in the city of Jerusalem at this particular time because it was one of the great feast days, the day of Pentecost. And thousands upon thousands, not just of those who normally lived in Jerusalem were there, but spiritual pilgrims from the Jewish community had traveled there for the day of Pentecost from all over the Roman Empire. So there were other people present in the city and it's entirely possible This is all happening in public. Peter is speaking to the crowd. It's entirely possible that others were walking by as Peter was proclaiming this message. And to the passers-by that are watching this exchange, and Peter, you know, somebody might have been walking by at the exact moment that Peter finished his message, and if he was observing the crowd, he would not, the passer-by, the casual observer, would not necessarily have known what the story here in Acts is about to tell us about what's happening with this crowd of 3,000 people. It's not that suddenly they all change clothes. And so uh, I could tell there's some big change that's happened with them. And there may not have been any external evidence at this exact moment at the beginning of verse 37 that would indicate, wow, a huge change has just happened. But a huge change had just happened but it was a spiritual change. It was an internal change and therefore could only be discerned by the Spirit of God. And so no question, Peter was discerning it. Probably others, at least the apostles were discerning it. And later, as Luke is interviewing those that were there to observe it, he gets that there's a perception of a change that's just taken place. And it's described for us because... We weren't there either. 
And so you and I have to lean on the, wit- the eyewitness accounts of what happened and what was discerned by those who were there. And this is the account. Now, when they heard this, that's the crowd, the 3,000, when they heard this message by Peter, they were, as Jerry was emphasizing in his exhortation this morning, they were cut to the heart. Now, I'm saying that everything in the first two chapters is meant to be read as a template, meaning it's important for us to look at this and say, what does this teach us now, and what should it have taught the church through the last 2,000 years of church history? And it's not meant to be looked at as, wow, that's, this is an exceptional experience that only happened to these people on that day and is never to happen again. I believe it is meant to be understood as this is what is supposed to happen every time someone truly comes to know the Lord. Because that's exactly what's being described here. These 3,000 who up until this moment have been listening to the message and are in the process of being affected by the message, but now the Lord himself brings to a conclusion his purpose in Peter proclaiming that message. And his purpose was a saving one. His purpose was to save all 3,000 that were listening that day. And this is what is actually being described. But the description is critically important. How do we know when someone's really saved? Now, recently, David took us through a, a study on Thursday night in the book of 1 John, books of 2 and 3 John. And those are written for our benefit to help us to be able to spiritually evaluate through a series of, of, of um, tests, spiritual spiritual ways of discerning whether someone has truly been saved or not. And while this particular description here in verse 37 is not mentioned in 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, the point of this is what those books are all about. The crowd listening to this gospel message, which contains within it the seed of the ability to change and transform a heart, from unsaved to saved, this is changing their hearts, but how do we know? It's changing their hearts because of how it impacted them at the moment of hearing it. And it's described here as they were cut to the heart. Now in the the original text that, that Luke used to describe what was going on inside these people's hearts. We're being, in a sense, allowed through Luke's words, Luke's description, to peer into the hearts of a crowd of 3,000 people 2,000 years ago. And it's being described as a heart change was happening with them, a heart change. And that heart change was not soft and it was not gentle. It was somewhat spiritually violent. And, and as, as Jerry was emphasizing this morning, the crowd wasn't inviting this impact upon their own hearts. They were just experiencing it and they couldn't stop it from happening. So what's the actual word picture that Luke uses? Cut to the heart is not a bad description. It's just not exactly what Luke actually says. What he says is they were pierced 
to the heart. There's a slightly different connotation. Um, how many of you have ever cooked a, a big, thick steak? Someone said, oh, yeah. You can, you, in the preparation of that steak, you can cut the steak. And later in the eating of it, you have to cut the steak. But what's the difference between cutting a steak and piercing the steak? There is a difference. There is a difference. One, one could be, depending on how deep the cut goes, it could be a surface level cut just to kind of expose a certain part of the interior of the meat, the piece of meat that you're dealing with. But a piercing, and this word that, that Luke chose, describes a full or complete piercing through, and all the way through piercing. Now, um, I've never had this experience. Many of you have. Um, We, as a culture, uh, there are many who do, they'll go and submit to, uh, they'll actually pay, some of you have done this, pay people money to get what is called a piercing, right? I I just, you know, Listen, I'm not blaming any of the women that have done that. Uh, for you guys that may have done that, you know, that's somewhat debatable and we can discuss that. But um, I would never, me, me, just me, I would never pay anybody to take a sharp implement and pierce any part of my body. It just doesn't seem like, sir, I don't even like shots when I need them, uh, let alone, you know, someone taking some big sharp thing and just like jabbing through my body. Um, and what happens when you have a piercing? What happens? There's a, you get a hole. And it, 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 there's, a, there's, there's just space. There's a space where before there wasn't. It affects that area. And of course, I've heard this, that like with you get your ears pierced and if you take the earring out, you know, over a period of time, it can eventually close up. But if the piercing's large enough and the piercing's deep enough, We're talking about a permanent kind of piercing. And actually, in the way that Luke describes it in the original text, we've been studying in our home church studies different verb tenses connected to certain exhortations. He uses a verb tense here, but not that one. He uses one that describes a a complete piercing to such an extent that it's a one-time piercing that from that moment forward, it remains pierced. Whatever it is that's been pierced, remains pierced and never closes up again. So in this case, what is it that's been pierced? They were pierced to the heart in such a way that their heart was permanently changed, would never be the same again. This is what, in terms of just imagery, because that's what Luke is doing here. He's giving us a word picture. Because the Lord didn't literally pierce their heart in a physical sense. He pierced their heart in a spiritual sense. And Luke is trying using human words, which sometimes fall a little short of really conveying the main point of what's being being described. He is saying that they were impacted by hearing one gospel message. Just one God. These people had only ever heard this message this one time in their lives. And it so deeply impacted them that they would never be the same again. They were pierced and they remained pierced. 
And that piercing changed them. And what was affected was the deepest part of their life, who they were, because the word heart conveys that deepest part of a human being. Now, why is that so important? Why should that function as a template for not just the people that were pierced that day, not just for that first generation of what we later came to call Christianity, but why is it meant to function as a template for us today? Because there are so many in our current generation and have been through 2,000 years of Christian generations of history. There are so many that identify themselves as Christian who have never had this experience. And I think the point of the passage is, if you've never had an experience like this, it's not going to be identical to what they experienced that day, but it must be similar. It must be similar. Heart piercing when you hear the gospel of salvation in a saving way, meaning the day your heart first believes it and embraces it and by the, by the grace of God grabs hold of it in such a way that you end up saved by it, that is an essential to describe a true salvation experience. There's no, uh, you know what, I, I, I've just kind of been raised in this and I've grown up around it and it's, you know, it's, it's in my field of awareness, but I've never had that. Well, if you've never had that, then you've never been saved. The point is that salvation is a heart-piercing experience. Now, because not all who name the name of Christ and not all who claim to be his followers have had such an experience, we have developments in Christianity and what you could call, you know, I didn't make up this term, you could call churchianity. We have developments in the last 2,000 years of church history, and even in recent church history, that are trying to skirt around this essential element of the necessity of heart piercing in order to identify as a true follower of Christ. Let me just name a couple, and I don't want to camp here too long because of all that we still have to cover uh, in this short section today. But uh, let me identify what has come to be known just in the last generation of Christianity. And it's not limited to the United States, but it, it started here in this country and it's kind of spread through worldwide Christianity. And it's known as the church growth movement. Now, I think the church growth movement was started with good intentions on the part of those that, that later came to be identified, the, the church leaders, the pastors, who came to be identified as the leaders of the church growth movement. I think they had good intentions, and I certainly don't want to um, accuse them of evil motives. I think for the most part they had good motives. But they weren't wise, and it should never have developed in Christianity. The church growth movement is a movement that identified that what matters most in Christianity is the church should be growing. And what they mean by that is the church should always be growing in numbers. We're going to see at the end of this section, look, look, just jump ahead down to verse 41. 
so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Did the church grow that day? Oh yeah, it grew, it grew, it grew shockingly, amazingly. It went in one day, the church, the true church, in one day went from 120 to 3,120. That's fairly significant growth. That's big growth. That's awesome growth. Am, am I a fan of that growth? Yes, I'm a huge fan of that growth. This was the church growing the way that the church is supposed to grow. Whether one soul was added or 3,000 were added, the church was growing in the way that it should grow. But the church growth movement puts the emphasis somewhere completely different. It puts all of the emphasis on the growth of the church by numbers through what I'm going to say, and, and it's not exactly like this, but you'll understand, through any means necessary. Now, what I mean by that is not they'll, they'll on purpose sin in order to cause the church to grow. But there is a willingness in the church growth movement to disregard biblical principles of church growth in order to achieve church growth. Now, why, would, why in the world would you disregard biblical principles for church growth in order to get your church to grow? Because sometimes biblical principles will confront our decisions and our desires to implement certain principles that are not just not found in Scripture, but in many cases contrary to Scripture. So the church growth movement does stuff like this. It does stuff like putting the building, the facility ahead of all other considerations, especially in this culture here in the United States, because the idea is no one's going to want to come to a rundown old building. So let's build beautiful new cutting-edge state-of-the-art facilities and if we have such a facility that will attract people, then we can share the message of the gospel with them and we will intend to get those people saved. Or things like, and I'm just going to pick one example. There's, I mean, it's, it's, it's an emphasis on facilities. It's an emphasis on special programs. You know, if I have this menu of special programs, people will be drawn from the community. But I'll just pick one example. And believe me, I am not targeting any one church when I say this. But I, I do want to use this example. Like, let's have a, as a church, let's invest thousands of dollars on an annual basis and have a fireworks show. And, and we will attract the entire community because everybody, how, who doesn't like fireworks? We'll attract the community and in that attraction, we'll have an opportunity to reach people for the Lord. Now, I will say this. If a church does have a fireworks show, in order to reach people and people are reached by the people in that church connecting with community members that would otherwise not come, then I think more power to them. Praise God. As long as the gospel ends up being preached somewhere in that process, then I can say praise God along with Paul the Apostle who responded in a similar kind of way. But this Acts 2 story is not about a fireworks show. You don't see Peter and the apostles saying, look, we got to do something to attract these people's attention. Let's have a fireworks show. There was a fireworks show that day, but it wasn't a natural show, was it? It was a, a fireworks from heaven kind of show. And it drew people and the Lord was working because the fireworks were happening in people's hearts, not just externally. Now, the other movement which is even worse than the church growth movement, is a movement that kind of sprang out of the church growth thing, and that was the seeker-friendly 
uh, movement that became super popular just in the last 20 to 30 years. The seeker-friendly took the church growth concept one step further, and basically what they said was, um, in order to reach people, in order to bring people to church, and in order to reach them, the number one thing we need to pay attention to is never make an unbeliever uncomfortable. Whatever you do, don't make them uncomfortable. If you make them uncomfortable, they'll never come back again. So they will do things like those that preach in seeker-friendly churches, they will change the substance of what they preach. They, they will not even mention, on purpose, intentionally, they won't even mention the word sin. Why? You don't want to tell an unbeliever they're in sin because if you do that, you're going to make them mad at you and they will never come, they will never uh, darken the doorway of your church again. Or, and believe me, I'm not making this stuff up, in the worship songs, every song has to be in major key I don't know if you know too much about music. I don't know a lot about it, but in in music, you either have major key or minor key, right, Tim? Is that correct? Major key is kind of like the uplifting, positive element of music, and minor key are the songs that are more depressing, more thoughtful, more, I have to stop and think about myself in this, while this song is going on. And so, seeker-friendly churches will only have major key music, because they want people to just feel positive and uplifted and, and leave feeling that way because they'll want to recreate that emotion and that experience the next time they come to church. And if you make them depressed, then you're risking losing them forever. Well, look, just, we're here in Acts 2. Look just up in verse 23, and let's, let's remember how Peter preached that day. This is from Peter's message. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. Do you think that might have been a depressing influence on the crowd that was listening to him that day? Did he, did he follow the seeker-friendly principle of never make the crowd that you're preaching to feel uncomfortable? Now, he disregarded that principle. In fact, he aimed at them. He targeted them. He wanted them to feel exceptionally uncomfortable. And I will tell you this. If you're listening to true preaching and true teaching of God's word the way it should be, there will be times when you feel really uncomfortable. And if you're not ever uncomfortable in the preaching and teaching of God's word, you're probably not hearing it the way you should hear it. Or the person is not preaching it and teaching it in the way that they should. God's word discomforts us consistently, regularly, in order to lead us to a deeper and greater comfort. It's meant to strip away the surface level comforts of our lives that we add on to our lives in order to make us feel less guilty about doing the things that we shouldn't be doing. And it calls us to repent and it calls us to a deeper comfort that's only found in faith and obedience to the Lord. All right. I spent way too long on that section. Let's move forward. So the crowd is cut to the heart. And in their being cut to the heart, they respond and they speak to Peter and to the apostles and say, brothers, what shall we do? Now they're calling Peter and the apostles brothers not because they yet understand they're Christian. This is not a 
Christian brotherhood thing yet for them in their understanding. They're calling their brothers because they're brothers in the Jewish community. Brothers, what shall we do? We're cut to the heart. We don't know what to do with this feeling that we're having. We don't know what to do with the impact that this message you just proclaimed. We're not arguing with it anymore. We're not fighting against it anymore. But we have no idea what to do with this heart condition that you've left us in. And so Peter, representing the apostles and the rest of the disciples, says to them in verse 38, and this is, this is the cure for what ails them. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, I, I, we're going to briefly go through every phrase that he just proclaimed to the crowd, but I, I hope you know this is where I'm really trying for your sake to speed up a little bit um, because I could easily take each phrase and turn it into its own study. Each phrase here is critically important, but let's just do a brief overview. The first thing he tells the crowd is, your heart has been pierced. What do you do next? He says, repent. The word literally translated means change your mind, but it has a deeper connotation even than that, even than the surface level meaning of the word itself. And I've given, you know, just because it's easy to remember, I've given three R words to kind of help understand what true repentance really is. What's really happening in the heart of a person that's repenting? It's first a reconsideration, meaning you're stopping and you're thinking about what matters most, which is your relationship with God. And you're thinking now from a new perspective than you've ever thought before this moment in your life. And I'm not talking here just about the repentance that we all should practice as believers now who are in right relationship with the Lord when we do something sinful to damage our heart's fellowship with the Lord. Repentance is necessary in that circumstance. But this is the initial repentance that leads to a true salvation experience. So what's happening? This heart-level reconsideration. And then that reconsideration, which starts in the mind, just thinking about your own relationship with God from a new perspective, but it sinks into the heart and leads to regret. It leads to a conviction in your heart about what it is that you've done, what it is that you failed to do, what it is you should have done differently than you have been doing, and what it is that the Lord is calling you to do and to experience in your relationship with him in the future heart-level regret, which we can call conviction. And then where does that conviction take you? It takes you into a change of life, a change of behavior. You begin, if you've had a, a, a true reconsideration in the mind and a true regret and conviction of heart, it leads you to living a different life, which is reform. Your life is reformed at that moment. And reform literally means the Lord starts from scratch and he rebuilds your life from that point of true repentance, which is always biblically married to true faith, 
But here the emphasis is on repentance for the crowd. And he starts to rebuild a life from that point. A brand new start for that life. Now, the thing I want to emphasize, because how you read this passage has been debated by some within the Christian community and misunderstood by some in the Christian community. Luke is not teaching, and Peter was not intending for the crowd to hear his first word, which is repent, and for them to think that I must repent in order for me to be saved. And it's my repentance that actually saves me. That's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is a pierced heart will repent. And it's in the piercing of the heart that salvation happens to that person. But it's the Lord applying that to that heart in the piercing of the heart. And if the heart is truly pierced, not all are, but if the heart is truly pierced, it will respond to that piercing in what we know as repentance. So in that sense, repentance is essential to salvation because it's the only way we can know for sure the heart has really been pierced. So what else does he say? Repent and be baptized. Now, I'm, I, I, I wish I did. I just, of course, don't have time. I'm, I'm already running close to the end of my time. The idea here is what all is involved in what Peter meant by using this term baptized, be baptized. I'll just reference you back. We recently, and it wasn't that terribly long ago, in our finishing of our study in Matthew 28, and we studied the Great Commission, we did a mini study on the nature of New Covenant, New Testament Christian baptism. So I'll reference you back to that study. If you want to find it on Sermon Audio, the name of the study was Baptizing Disciples. And again, it was just a few months back that we did that study, maybe a year ago. But I I want you to understand this in all that Peter means when he says be baptized. It's a word of command. It's not an optional thing. He's not talking to the crowd of 3,000 saying, all 3,000 of you, your heart has been pierced. And for some of you, you may want to be baptized. We have that as an optional thing on the spiritual menu of what it means to be a disciple of the Lord. For the rest of you, you're not really comfortable with the, with the baptism part. Don't worry. You come on in too and everything will be fine. So we'll have in the church some baptized people and some unbaptized people. As long as your heart was pierced, that's all that matters. Well, your heart being pierced is the first and most important element. But repentance and baptism are as essential as heart piercing because heart piercing always leads to repentance and baptism. So the same thing I said with repentance. Baptism is not a saving element. You can't say, okay, I'll be baptized and that will save me any more than you can say, I'll repent and that will save me. But if your heart has been pierced and you truly are born again, you truly are saved, you will repent and you will get baptized because it's a first response of a transformed heart and it's a response of obedience. So it's, it's not optional. And here what we can see is neither is it meant to be delayed. Now I know there's a few here that truly came to know the Lord and Months later, in a, in a couple of cases I know about, years later, you were baptized. But the biblical pattern is, 
how quickly after true salvation, how quickly after new birth should you be baptized? Peter wanted them baptized when? That day. Has your heart been pierced? Have you embraced this message? Are you truly saved? Okay, let's go find some water and get you folks baptized today. Well, look, I, I want to put together a baptism party. And, you know, I need time to plan. Maybe can we do it like a month from now when I, you know, I send out the invitations and, and, and get the RSVPs. No. You can have a baptism party. You can do it a month later, but do it a month after your baptism. The point is it's linked. It's meant, the experience, the physical experience is meant to be linked to the moment of your salvation because it's symbolic of your salvation. And what does it symbolize? Well, it symbolizes, as later in the book of Acts, we're going to see this phrase, be baptized, washing away your sins. And of course, and Peter later clarifies this in his own letter, he doesn't mean that water, physical water baptism can somehow reach into your heart and wash your heart. It's not possible for something physical to wash away something spiritual. But what he means is, in the piercing of your heart, your sins have been washed away. Therefore, it's appropriate for you to undergo the external physical rite of baptism in order to symbolize on the day that it happens what has just happened to you. Now, there's a problem, of course, that's risen in 2,000 years of church history, and that is a false teaching about baptism. And large segments of those who claim to know the Lord but don't have created a teaching around this misunderstanding. And the teaching is identified as what we call baptismal regeneration. And what's meant by that is simply, in the act of being water baptized, you're born again. You can't possibly be born again unless you're water baptized and only as you're water baptized can you and will you actually be born again. And of course, that false teaching then led to decisions to let's just get people baptized. Because if we can get them baptized and that's how people are born again, then as soon as they're baptized, they're born again. So when should we start that? Well, let's, you know, as soon as a baby's born into a Christian family, let's, let's baptize that baby because if the new birth happens when they're baptized, we can ensure right from day one that that child is born again before they even know what's going on. The Roman Catholic Church believes this, and sadly, even some who identify themselves as evangelical. Uh, it's one of the problems, if I had thought through all of the implications, we probably would have named this church a little differently than than we did. The church is named Tree of Life Christian Church. I'd probably just drop the word Christian if I could rename the church, and it's only a paperwork issue why we haven't. I'd probably just call it Tree of Life Church. Why? Because there's a whole denomination called the Christian Church. It's not that I want to run away from being identified as Christian, but there's a denomination called the Christian Church that teaches the heresy of baptismal regeneration. So when you see our name, please don't associate us with that doctrinal heresy. I'll say it this way. Regeneration, new birth, always, without exception, precedes baptism. Always. You cannot be 
baptized before you're born again for the baptism to mean what it's supposed to mean. Baptism is biblically defined as a sign and a seal of a salvation experience. Sign means it symbolizes what's already taken place in the heart, and seal meanings, means it, it externally, in front of witnesses, confirms that this change at a heart level has already taken place. All right, next detail. Peter tells them, and we're in verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you. I, I don't have to emphasize the phrase every one of you, meaning this is, as I said before, this is not going to be a, a church, true church situation of some unbaptized and some who are. Every one of the true disciples should be baptized. But how they're to be baptized, he says, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ. Why are we baptized in the name of Jesus Christ rather than in our own name? Why is it when I, when I was baptized, I didn't say, and I am baptized today in the name of Tim Bourgeois. If, if I'm baptized in my own name, what I'm proclaiming is, hey, look, look everybody, I just saved myself. The fact that it's in his name emphasizes he is the one who has saved me. I was completely unable to save myself. But what's the correct baptism formula? Now, we studied this again, and I'm referencing you back to the Matthew series in that particular study called Baptizing Disciples. Um, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, in Matthew's account of what we call the Great Commission, there is a There is a mention of a baptismal formula, so to speak, but it's not meant to be interpreted that way. And sadly, many in the church have interpreted that way. He said that, he quotes Jesus speaking to his disciples, teaching his disciples, teaching the apostles and saying to them, go out and baptize those that, you know, have have, uh, received the gospel of salvation. Go out and baptize, baptizing them in, in in what manner? In the name of of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so there are, there are well-intentioned leaders, scholars, Bible teachers, pastors, who have taken that and understood it as that's the correct formula because it came right out of the mouth of Jesus. We are to say the exact words when we baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if you don't say those magic words, you're not really baptized or your baptism doesn't count, or it's somehow a second-class baptism. So what does Peter say? Because trust me, Peter was there in Matthew 28. He heard the words from Jesus, so we only have two choices here. Peter misunderstood. He heard Jesus say it in Matthew, but now, just a few short days later, he's already forgotten that. He's creating some new, secondary, uh, inferior baptismal formula And he really blew it here. Because he says, baptizing them in the name of Jesus Christ. Where's the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit? Where is it? That's an important question. Now, we don't have time, but for your notes, and I think it's up on the screen, you could do a quick survey. We'll eventually get to these passages. The one we're reading right now is Acts 2.38. But if you look at Acts 8.16... If you look at Acts 10.48, if you look at Acts 19.5, and these, these passages in Acts that I put up in the overhead, they are all 
of the examples, the only examples in the book of Acts of when the correct baptismal formula is used in a saving moment. When brand new disciples are, dis- are, are baptized, how is the per- person baptizing them? How is he baptizing them? And what are the words that he says? And in every single case, they say, in the name of Jesus Christ. So the question is, did, all, did the whole book of Acts get this wrong and fail to use the right baptismal formula? No, and this is why I put one more passage up here, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. And the point of that passage, I won't read it, but the point of that passage is it says that in Christ, in Jesus, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. The Son represents the Father, He represents himself and he represents the Holy Spirit. And when you use the name of Jesus Christ with that understanding, you are baptizing in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit. But the name that's actually used in baptism because it's meant to go into the ears of everyone observing in the community, not just the ears of those who are already saved. And even in the rite of baptism, you're doing evangelism for any that are observing. And all of the spotlight is on who? It's on Jesus. Because they don't know the Father yet. And they certainly don't know the Holy Spirit. But they should know about Jesus Christ as the Savior, as the one who has caused this great salvation. Then he adds this line, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. This is, needs an entire study, but I'm not going to do it. I just want you to understand. He is not saying that unless you're baptized, you won't be forgiven. He's saying that baptism is God's chosen symbol of forgiveness because it's in the regeneration of your pierced heart that your sins were washed away. So baptism is connected to an already occurring salvation in an essential way. And then he adds a promise. If you will do this, it's an if-then thing. If you will do this, then God will do this. What are they required to do? They're required to repent and they're required to be baptized in obedience to the Lord's command. And if they will do that, Peter gives them a promise. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now we, we emphasize this point in our chapter one study in Acts, and that is that every born-again believer, without exception, if you truly have been born again, you have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. There are no exceptions to this, none. It's a 100% certain promise. If you are truly pierced, if you have repented, if you have been baptized, then God will cause you to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he adds this, the promise is for you, your children, all for all far off everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. Well, the first thing is what promise are we talking about? For your notes, I'll just reference you back to we've studied these passages in detail when we were in chapter 1, Luke chapter 24 verse 49, Acts chapter 1 verses 4 and 5. It's the promise of the Holy Spirit. 
The Spirit who was promised in a new and greater way throughout the prophets of the Old Covenant now has arrived here on the day of Pentecost. And so the promise is not just for the 120 that were filled with the Spirit that day, but it's now for the 3,000 as well and all who will ever come to know the Lord following them. And he says the promise is for your children as well. Just to be clear, this is not an automatic thing. He is not saying if you're saved, your children are automatically saved along with you. This has been one of the most, with good intentions, one of the most twisted phrases in the New Testament. This is not a promise that parental salvation automatically leads to child salvation of the same family. What he is saying is this, if you have believed this message in a saving way, leading to your heart being uh, pierced, leading to a true repentance, leading to a true baptism, you will receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. And if your children have their heart pierced and repent and believe and are baptized, they will receive the same promise just like you have. The essential is each one's heart must first be changed. And then he says, this is also for all who are far off. Who are those that are far off? The Gentiles at this point in history. I gave you a couple of verses there in our overhead notes. Acts 10 and Acts 11. uh, Acts 10, 45. Acts 11, verses 17 and 18. Where this is the way in the book of Acts of the apostles describing the Gentiles. They start out far off from God because they are born in the community outside of covenant relationship with God where the Jews had an advantage. They were born into a covenant relationship, but an old covenant one. Now in the new covenant, even those who were far off are being brought near if they believe the gospel in the same saving way. And then the final phrase of emphasis, everyone whom the Lord calls. You might remember we did a study just recently in Acts 2 about the three calls of salvation. The three calls of salvation are a general call that preachers, by the commandment of the Lord, make to the entire unbelieving world. We just call everyone to hear the message of the gospel and to believe it. And then the final of the three calls is a call in which the person that has had their heart pierced calls on on the Lord in order to actually be saved. But in between those two, there is this Biblical principle of regeneration, new birth, which theologians have called the effectual call. This is a call where the Lord draws someone to themselves, even if that person that's being called is being drawn kicking and screaming. This is a a call by the power of God where he brings someone like he did, Saul of Tarsus, later in the book of Acts. He brings them to himself and saves them. Now, I will save, because I'm way past my time, I will save verse 41, uh, the end of verse 40 and 41, I'll save those two and I'll tag them on to the remaining verses in the book of Acts, which I hope to finish in Acts 2, um, verses 42 through 47. Uh, And again, this is me being being a planner, but not always... uh, not always knowing in advance exactly how much it'll take. Uh, So we'll save that for next time. Application for today, three things. Check yourself. What should you check? Has your heart ever 
once been truly pierced by the gospel? Have you ever experienced true repentance in your relationship with the Lord? Which, remember, is a a reconsideration leading to a heart-level regret, leading to a reform, a restart of your life. And have you ever truly been baptized in the name of Jesus? Now, if you were baptized and someone said, even here in this church, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, trust me, you're fine. But I'm not, don't, you, know, you, you don't need to be rebaptized in that circumstance. Uh, but have you had these experiences at a heart level? Second, believe. What are you to believe? Believe that if you have had the experiences that I just described, believe that all your sins are forgiven. For the forgiveness of your sins, not one of them, not, not the top 10 of your sins or not the bottom 10 of your sins, but every sin you've ever committed, and this is a study of another time, every sin you will ever commit in the future is addressed in the saving work of the Lord. And then finally, appreciate, and this is really, this point of application is connected to the verse that I didn't uh, emphasize yet in verse 41, but appreciate that God has added you to his church. Appreciate that God has given you a new start. God has made something, uh, in the, at least in the beginning stage, made something beautiful out of what was only ugly in your life before. God has transformed you. God has changed you. God has a purpose for you. And appreciate and be grateful to him for that. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for how your word speaks to our heart even today and how it's meant to change the way that we think it's meant ultimately in the biggest picture it's meant to pierce through our heart and change us forever I want to thank you for how you have pierced many many hearts here today and if there's any heart that remains unpierced it's your work only you can do it but I pray that you would and I thank you for your work in our lives and may your son be glorified and magnified and honored by your work in us amen all right God bless